What's going on guys, it's your man with the plan, Samuel Plank, coming back at you once again with another brand new installment of Sports Entertainment is Dead right here on Lords of Pain Radio. Alright, welcome to the show folks. Thanks for tuning in. If you did miss last week's show, always remember you can go check that out on demand. Just head over to lordsofpain.net, blog talk radio, or of course wherever you may listen to your podcasts. Download it and give it a listen. Though of course last week was the alternative pre-show for WrestleMania 35. My thanks to my special guests from last week. First of all my Australian namesake Sir Sam, and of course my right side of the Pond cohort Maverick, both of whom joined me to help me preview that pay-per-view, which was, of course, this last Sunday just gone, which means, as tradition dictates, here on Sports Entertainment is Dead, it's performance art review time. And with 16 matches on the card, obviously the last thing I'm going to be doing here, especially because I've already broke down my thoughts on every single match as part of Aftershock, which incidentally is another show you can go check out on demand if you missed it, that aired Monday, is to go through every one of those 16 matches. Frankly, at this point, having watched WrestleMania for seven and a half hours, already talked about it for three hours, already watched the post-Mania Raw for three hours, I'm all about wrestlemania it out. But it is sports entertainment is dead. I always do these performance art reviews. And in keeping with tradition, uh, because it's a performance art review, I'm only going to be breaking down my thoughts on on what I thought were the key takeaways from this show. And the first thing that I think it's worth saying is that I was absolutely delighted this weekend, and I I tweeted out as much a little earlier on today as of recording, which is Tuesday. It's been so nice to see a little bit of level-headedness return to WWE overall, to return to their general product. And what I mean by that is I've seen a lot of people express a certain amount of disappointment with the quality of the ring action, with some of the storyline developments on Raw after Mania, and I can understand that maybe some of that is a little underwhelming to people, and certainly when it came to the main event of WrestleMania, I myself felt underwhelmed, uh, as I discussed on on Aftershock this last week. Um, But I would sooner have that calmness about the product to be willing to see where they take the storylines, where they take the challenges, where they take the champions, then I would see WWE scrambling around, throwing 50 million ideas at the wall, as they seemed to be doing in the build-up to WrestleMania. It felt like the build-up to WrestleMania this year was a bit of a storm, uh, and once you got to WrestleMania, you were sat in the calm, in the eye of the storm. It felt very patient, very poised, very level-headed, very sure of what it wanted to achieve and very confident in going around achieving it. The structure of the card made its fair share of mistakes. Uh, I think that having another 30-minute Triple H match in the position it was in on the card took the wind out of the sails of the show, the same with the Kurt Angle match, and I think WrestleMania 35 in general demonstrated that actually the use of part-timers has never been less necessary, indeed has never been more intrusive than it was this year. It was refreshing that John Cena had a limited cameo, refreshing not to have The Undertaker on the show at all, and so there are signs of a positive change towards focusing on the contemporary stars, and with Seth Rollins emerging as the Universal Champion and Roman Reigns having already lobbied for that to headline WrestleMania next year, hope has never been brighter that next year we will have all contemporary talent in all the main events across WrestleMania. So we will see. It was very telling as well in a post-match interview that Triple H did on his way back to the gorilla position backstage that was uploaded onto YouTube's, uh, onto WWE's YouTube channel, uh, that he seems to be uncertain as to whether or not he would wrestle again. So there's hope that maybe we've seen the last match of Triple H as well. To be honest, I doubt that we have, but we can live in hope. So, generally speaking, I enjoyed the fact that WrestleMania was a little less hysterical this year. It was still as bloated as it always is, but it felt a little bit more sure of itself and the stories it told, and it seemed to busy itself more with telling the stories than with doing anything else. So I liked that. I also liked the tone of many of the matches. In fact, thinking back, I would say this applies to every match except perhaps the main event, which we'll get to in a little while. 
you guys, if you've tuned into Sports Entertainment's Dead before, if you've tuned into the right side of the Pond or Aftershock or Retroshock before, if you've read any one of my columns that get posted on LordsOfPain.net before, you will know that I am a huge, huge fan of the New Generation era. Indeed, it's my favourite era in all the history of WWE. And one of the reasons for that, indeed probably the primary reason for that, is because of how smart the wrestling was then. I have issues with, say, NXT and NXT takeovers because while they while their matches unfold in a very fashionable way that get the crowd absolutely, you know, losing their minds which is a nice thing to see instantly. I'm not here to try and, you know, ruin anyone else's kind of experience as a fan. But I find the match style that's come to dominate in NXT a little hysterical. Heavy-handed, undisciplined, I guess is the word that I would use, that takes the easiest route to garnering those reactions. And I think certainly with, say, Johnny Gargano matches or Velveteen Dream matches, excluding the magnificent match you had with Matt Riddle this weekend, just gone. What you often find is there's like ten, five, ten minutes at the back end of the match... In my opinion, the, always the, that, that extra bit that always ruins what could have been, in my mind, a phenomenal match by just piling it on a little too much, laying it on a little too thick, where the crowd aren't emoting as much as they are just reacting to what's happened. And I made that distinction on this show and on other shows before. I prefer professional wrestling that has crowds totally immersed and emoting rather than just reacting to what's going on in the ring. And I feel like that's a lost art form in this day and age. So when I sat down, I I watched WrestleMania 35 live. And you had that wonderful tag team match between the Revival and the Elite Squad, Kurt Hawkins and Zack Ryder. I call them the Elite Squad because it's, I think, one of the brand names for the action figures they collect. It got, it busied itself, it got on with telling a simple but effective underdog story that rendered the result something that you could accept from a fictional standpoint, that it didn't feel like it was straining disbelief too much because of the way the story was told. And then you had two nicely constructed battle royals uh, that that worked in the way I feel battle royals always work best, and we sort of discussed that, if you recall, back in January when I did my genre breakdown of Royal Rumble matches, and one of the things that I talked about was agenda, personal agenda, this sense of everybody in the match having a mission statement, having clear motivation and that one of the magic things about those environments is when you start seeing how all those different motivations begin to clash with each other and you've got elements of that in the two battle royals it wasn't you know it wasn't sort of uh worn on its sleeve you had to look for it you had to search for it it wasn't totally obvious but that subtlety and that restraint again to me just added to the magic of what we were seeing they felt like disciplined matches that knew the job they were there to do and got on with doing the job well and weren't interested in putting together something spectacular full of zany moments to try and steal the show they just wanted to tell their story and i thought both of them told their story well and i yeah i have fewer thoughts on the cruiserweight match but again i think that was uh, another well-told story that got on with the business of telling its story and not trying to steal the show. And when you started to accumulate all of this, by the time the pre-show came to a close, I was already set in a very good mood because I was watching wrestling that reminded me of new-gen-style wrestling. Wrestling that was cerebral. Wrestling that put the 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 reasoning behind each moment ahead of the moment itself. That put the means before the ends. And again, I think that's a little bit of a lost art. We live in the age of excess. And part of the excess that we have to accept every single week are wrestling matches that have become heavily influenced by, I think, a combination of independent style wrestling, which puts the action first, in my experience. Anyway, my limited experience I accept, but my experience nonetheless. And Puro Resu, which operates in, you know, Japanese strong style that operates in an element of what I've always referred to as hyper-realism, which is uh, as if, you know, matches play out almost as if they're shoot matches, but the wrestling moves are shoot wrestling moves. It's difficult to explain, but um, nonetheless, what this means is that the predominant ring style in WWE has become, the predominant fashion, let's say, has become a hyperactive one that operates at a million miles an hour, and unless it begins to lay it on thick, is often considered a disappointment by the popular audience. And I would levy that that claim to the ends of the earth. You may disagree. I'd be interested, if you do disagree, to hear your thoughts 
Obviously, I will plug the means by which you can share your thoughts with me at the end of the show, as I always do. But nonetheless, that's how I feel the ring style has changed. So to have had an event that started off with a two-hour pre-show filled with four matches that were a hark back to a time I preferred with more cerebral wrestling, uh, more story-driven wrestling that was composed, level-headed, and with a clear sense of confident direction. I really appreciated that, and I enjoyed them all the more for it. It reminded me very much of the new gen. And then that continued on into the majority of the main pay-per-view. And I think you could say everything from the Seth Rollins match to the opened up the show to the Kofi Kingston-Brian match that, that obviously was the centerpiece all the way through even to the Finn Balor-Bobby Lashley IC title match, the Corbin Angle match, the, the Batista Triple H match, they all felt like they put the story ahead of the moments, ahead of any desire to steal the show. Because the issue is, when you get to a point where every match is trying to steal the show, you get cards, pay-per-view cards, that in my mind lack any sense of synergy, lack any sense of cohesion, and instead it's a very abrasive experience. Things aren't designed to complement one another. There's no sense of a team effort from across the roster. And it was nice and refreshing to get a show that instead followed the doctrine of matches like Christian DDP at WrestleMania 18, which I recently tweeted as one of my favourite 35 WrestleMania matches, because, as Maverick and I have said in the distant past on the right side of the pond, that's a match that seeks to contribute to the show rather than steal it, and I felt like that was what was the predominant theme throughout this year's WrestleMania. Of course, that was helped along very much uh, by the fact that WrestleMania was produced with the fans in mind first. There was no... You know, swerves for the sake of swerves. There were there were no attempts to dupe the audience. There were very few even moments that were self-consciously designed to be quote quote WrestleMania moments. There were one or two, but they generally were very brief uh, and didn't overstay their welcome. And the matches again, you know, putting that story first, but also uh, delivered on results importantly delivered on results that fans really wanted to see and that I think is going to be a key thing for them to continue doing throughout the rest of the year as we begin to try and solidify the the revised sense of direction that has appeared in the product across the course of WrestleMania weekend. I wrote a column, the Sunday column, which drops every Sunday on lordsofpain.net from Just Business, which you can obviously read every Sunday, documenting my thoughts, my sort of final thoughts thoughts in the hours leading up to WrestleMania itself, and one of the things that I discussed in this column was the conversation that had come, I wouldn't say dominated wrestling conversation into WrestleMania, but it was certainly a pertinent conversation, prominent one that was being had among many fans, which was the notion that someone had to lose out of the top three challenges. When you think about Kofi Kingston, when you think about um, uh, Seth Rollins and, and, Dan, and uh, sorry, Becky Lynch, um, or being in a position where fans wanted to see them win, but also occupying those three preeminent title challenge spots, the conversation became, well, at least one of them's got to lose, right? Surely they can't all win. And the question that I raised in the column that I'm talking about was, why not? I mentioned this on Aftershock the other day on Monday, so if you listen to that show, I apologise for repeating myself. But I think it's worth repeating, because this is sports entertainment is dead. And let's not forget my mission statement that I've put at the heart of this show, which is to demonstrate that professional wrestling is a far more fulfilling experience when you cast aside the rules and impositions that we have needlessly adopted over the last 30 years that are no longer fit for purpose in the 21st century. In other words, when you look at sports entertainment as a philosophy for wrestling, it is arcane and it needs dispensing of Placed, I believe, best of all, by the performance art ideas that I championed in my book, 101 WWE Matches to See Before You Die, which you can buy on Amazon, but also in my columns and various podcasts. And the idea that some, for some reason you've got to balance out, you know, heel and babyface victories, to use the outdated terminologies, is nonsense. I don't, you know, I don't understand that at all. Surely what's important is making sure that the narratives you've been telling over the course of however many weeks or months it may have been are allowed to have a conclusion to them that feels like they justify the narrative that preceded them. Or rather, let me rephrase that, that the narrative justifies itself. So, in other words, you know, you don't build up uh, you don't build up a story making you believe that a certain someone is going to win only for them to not win because that breaks the the momentum of the narrative. 
it's in opposition with the direction of the narrative and is generally a result that fans will reject and audience will reject. We see that time and time again in WWE. I call it failure of narrative. And it is one of their worst problems. When you're writing any kind of story, you need a conclusion to that story that feels like it's justified by the story leading up to it or the story it's concluding. And that's why it's important to think, okay, well, actually, it doesn't matter if all the good guys win. If that's what the stories demand, which in this case they did, then that's what we should do. And anything other is anything any other idea is just some bizarre imposition that we ourselves have needlessly adopted and said this is how professional wrestling has to work. So you can imagine then how happy I was that when it came to the night WWE saw the light and decided it didn't matter, cast aside one of those rules and self-imposed rules of sports entertainment and instead adopted an approach that put the narrative first much like the matches themselves and gave us the winners that those narratives quite obviously demanded we get. Now obviously that all started out with Seth Rollins winning the Universal Championship against Brock Lesnar and that's a match that I want to, I guess, I'll start off with here. I was intending on, on finishing with it, but seeing as that's this is how naturally I've rambled myself to this point, let's go with that first. So the first thing, again, sticking with that idea that I was just championing, actually, about sports entertainment being dead and these rules that we've needlessly imposed, one of them is, is and I'm almost loath to say that this is an explicitly espoused one because I'm not sure that it is but there seems to be an inference among most fans who are still of that sports entertainment mindset that if a match is anything longer than say anything shorter than say five six seven minutes it's automatically going to be precluded from any kind of critical praise because how something could something that short possibly be worth its while and what we saw on uh, Sunday with the opening of WrestleMania is actually you can have very short matches that, to coin the cliche, maximise their minutes. But more importantly, quite aside from that, are short, it are, are, are tell an effective story by virtue of being short. And I thought the marvellous thing about the way that WrestleMania opened, aside from the fact that it was a dramatic beginning to the show, was that... And it's where you've got to start making the differentiation between a match and a story and appreciate that sometimes a short match is part of a, of a well-told story uh, and is, by virtue of that, in my mind, a good match. Uh, and that's what we got. We got this marvellously told story that worked on many levels. First of all, and I said this on Aftershock, this match kicked off WrestleMania, and usually I would be adversely... You know, I'd be, I'd be adverse to a world title match kicking off a WrestleMania... But it worked brilliantly because it played into the character. One of the primary themes of this Seth Rollins-Brock Lesnar feud over the course of the months leading up to WrestleMania has been a sense of entitlement, has been the role that passion should play in the career of a champion or in the career of any professional wrestler. And Brock Lesnar doesn't have a passion for professional wrestling. He doesn't have a passion for the industry. And as a result, was seen to be holding the industry hostage by the challenger who did have that passion, which is Seth Rollins. Seth Rollins was fighting for more than just himself, which was why it presented as well a perfect conclusion to his story arc over the last however many years it's been. I'm not going to deal with that in too much depth here because it is an entire edition, maybe even two editions of Sports Entertainment is Dead unto itself. But I will say to have gone from a position whereby he betrayed his brothers by putting his own uh, his own success in mind to the point where his success was in synergy with the success of the industry and the success of the people who loved it as much as he did. In other words, to have gone from someone who fought for himself to someone who fought for others by by being motivated by his passions uh, is just a beautiful way to conclude a story arc of a man who has had to be, who has been robbed of everything he held dear and had to reclaim it bit by bit by bit. And I tweeted out shortly after... Seth picked up the victory that he he rebuilt, he redesigned, and he reclaimed, and now he was redeemed. And that was the end. I, I called it in a column I wrote a few weeks back. What we saw uh, open the show on Sunday was the end of the beginning of Seth Rollins, because that's all this has been. This this four-year, five-year journey was the beginning of Seth Rollins in WWE, and now it's come to conclusion. We can move very excitedly on to the next chapter. Um, so that played well to, to Seth's character arc, and I got sidetracked a second ago. What I was saying was that the way that it was presented, Paul Heyman saying, you know, we're, we're not going to wait around, we're going to get on with this, then go to Las Vegas where we're appreciated. 
uh, that played into Brock Lesnar's character arc. Brock, it's easy to forget Lesnar's been on a character arc of his own in recent years, which has seen him slowly have his mythos that was built up around 2014-2015 be chipped away. Time and again, he wrestled big opponents. Time and again, he basically survived. He survived Samojo. He survived Braun Strowman. Eventually, he fell to Roman Reigns. He's, he only just survived Goldberg. He's had his mythos chipped away to the point where people began to realize, actually, he he... He wasn't all that. And what we saw with Seth Rollins was uh, the way Seth won the match as well was a literal demonstration of Brock Lesnar's humanity. Seth went low, uh, reducing Brock Lesnar to the state of any other man. That then facilitated Seth Rollins' ability to pick up the victory. We also saw during the course of that little match, Seth Rollins' willpower again. I've spoken about this many times on the show in my columns. Uh, that what defines Seth Rollins is twofold: his his lust for success, his addiction to it, but the unprecedented, indomitable, unmatched willpower that is, the, to my mind, the most powerful force in all of WWE's fictional universe that allows him to attain that success. I said in a column once that Seth very kindly read and retweeted that Seth Rollins doesn't play chess like, say, a Triple H would. Seth Rollins plays Russian roulette. It's all or nothing, and he has to win every single time because otherwise it is proverbial death to him. That was the situation that he was in this last Sunday. And the way that the match started off, Lesnar jumping Rollins, by the way, as if he was panicked, which was a nice little touch as well that you could read into it. The idea that after the way Seth got the last laugh on Raw, you could read it one of two ways. Lesnar was either pissed or panicked or maybe even both. So he jumped Rollins, he threw him around like a ragdoll. I thought the aesthetic in how they did that was marvellous as well. Totally on point as to what it should have been. Uh, then the match starts. Uh, and... Uh, and, you know, Lesnar throws Seth around a bit more, and Seth slowly pulls himself up to his feet, and he's put back down again, and he slowly pulls himself back up to his feet, and you can you could feel him willing himself on when he began to get an advantage. You could feel himself, you could feel that willpower grinding away and beginning to come out into the open, and Brock Lesnar coming to, to experience it. So that was another wonderful moment in this marvellous composition. Uh, and then, on top of that... And I mentioned this again on Aftershock. You had the wonderful moment with the ref bump that facilitated Seth being able to nail the low blow that gave him the advantage he needed. And what I love about that is that there was there's a pause. Lesnar has him on his shoulders and there's a pause. And it's almost as if Seth spots the referee and sees this is the chance now. Almost as if, not that he was playing possum, because he definitely had a disadvantage at the time, but that it was a very deli- that it was the architect. That it was the opportunism that you know, pushed him to to the heights he reached as part of the, the authority. And so you had an element there as well of all the different chapters of Rollins' journey up to this point informing the experience of the match and informing his ability to beat Lesnar. It was almost as if his experience, his arc, was the perfect training regime for him to defeat Brock Lesnar that night. So that was another wonderful part of the match. And let's also take a second here to appreciate the fact that there was a lot of symmetry with WrestleMania 31 in the design of this. In many ways, the fact that it was only two minutes long, I thought was fantastic because it was essentially the end of WrestleMania 31, except for without Roman Reigns to deliver the spear. Now, if it was Seth in 2015 in that situation, he didn't stand a hope in hell's chance, as we saw at Battleground in 2015. But Seth Rollins in 2019, in that same situation, but without Roman Reigns, was able to get the job done. And that was very much, I thought, the the point that was being made about the character of Seth Rollins in the match, that he was a different man to what he had been, and that's why he could get it done this time around. There was also symmetry in, obviously, the way they had Seth celebrating on the stage, the fact that WrestleMania 31 ended this way and WrestleMania 35 opened this way. One thing that I mentioned in passing on Aftershock and that I'll mention with a bit more depth here is that there was a sense of heist of the century returning here, except for with the roles reversed. And this time it was Brock Lesnar wanting to get it over and done with quick so that he could steal away the the Universal Championship from WWE. And here what you had, uh, whereas at WrestleMania 31, obviously, it was Seth Rollins 
as a member of the authority, essentially trying to race against time to steal the WWE championship away from Brock Lesnar for the WWE. So you had the heist of the century replayed with the roles reversed. And again, that is such a wonderful way to feed into the wider character arc for Seth Rollins and the journey his character has been on since, I would say since 2012, because I think all this time in the Shield is a part of the arc as well. But if you wanted a shorter version of it, obviously since 2014. So there was a lot of things at play in this match. And beyond anything else, I liked the fact that it had symmetry with the way that the go-home show on Raw ended. And I liked the fact that Seth didn't waste time. Seth's a smart guy and one of the things the character and one of the things I mean I'm sure I'm sure the performer is he strikes me as one but but I'm talking about the character here he's a smart man and one of the things that has bothered me a lot and it's something that came up in the build actually to the Johnny Gargano Adam Cole match on NXT where they did a segment on NXT where Gargano started banging on about how he always has the best match and he's Mr. Takeover and Adam Cole pointed out that he always loses and it always bothers me when wrestlers go about boasting and to be fair I'm sure it's something Seth's done in the past as well but it's it's a fault of the writers, not the performers. Where they have wrestlers going around saying boasting about how they're always going to have the best match on the card. Because surely, from an in-universe perspective, you don't care whether you have the best match on the card. Surely, from an in-universe perspective, you should only care about whether or not you can win. And... You know, the whether or not you do that through through shorthanded means or the hard way depends on the morality of your character. And this is again something that I think we've all forgotten because we're still clinging to an outmoded form of uh, outmoded philosophy when it comes to our wrestling. And so it made perfect sense that Seth would nail the low blow and do the curb stomps very very much up front and not waste time in this situation because he was there to take that Universal Championship away from Brock Lesnar. Winning was his primary objective. That was how he was going to attain the success he's addicted to and that is what he said he was going to do heading in. That was his only purpose. He didn't care about having a great match. He cared about taking the Universal Championship and that's what he did. And also Brock Lesnar doesn't care. The character doesn't care about having a great match either. He's there to win and that's why he always does the suplex city thing because he's going to take the easiest route to victory he can so actually the fact that it it was only two minutes made total sense from the perspective of the story fed into all the theme predominant themes of the story was melded with a beat down on the front end and also a, you know a very pissed off looking Brock Lesnar on the back end and a celebration all of which mirrored WrestleMania 31 which was part of the story it was uh, the the action itself was formed in a manner that fed into the the experience of Seth Rollins as a character. The match was explained away in its position by the character of Brock Lesnar and Paul Heyman. Uh, and again, symmetry with WrestleMania 31, where Lesnar had where the crowd were invested because Lesnar had just re-signed with WWE, and here the crowd were invested because he was potentially going back to UFC. So more symmetry there. Everything about this composition was masterful. The way it, it was a cool way to kick off the show, a dramatic way to kick off the show, but it was so much more than that as well. And it's only when you decide to look at it from the perspective of art and and forget any formulas or or and, uh, or, or statistics or rules that you may adopt as a wrestling fan that you come to appreciate the fact that just because it's two minutes doesn't mean that it was a disappointment and doesn't mean that it failed to do anything cool or interesting or effective or indeed tell a good story. I would rate it as a very good match, fit for purpose that put the story before the before anything else, that that's what I appreciate. I love the character based nature of it, the way it, it concluded Seth's character arc was amazing I absolutely thought everything about it was performance art masterpiece, uh, a performance art masterpiece um, I, if I were to do that 35 favorite WrestleMania matches again, it would definitely be on the list. It'll be I don't know how high it'd be on the list, but it would definitely be on the list. I thought it was a, a tribute to what wrestling can achieve when it puts the story and the art form and the characters at the forefront of everything. Uh, and when you married the matchup with everything before and after it, just a, a, a very memorable, very effective, very powerful segment of the show, I thought. And I, I would rate it as a, as a fantastic match. Uh, but you only get there if you forget sports entertainment. So don't forget that sports entertainment is is dead, folks. 
That pretty much brings us up to the end of the first half of this show. Stick with me. I'm going to take you to an advert break now. When we come back, I'll have a brief word on the women's triple threat match, and then we'll talk about the centerpiece of last Sunday's show, which was, of course, the emotional victory of Kofi Kingston over Daniel Bryan. More on that in a few minutes. Stick with me. Okay, welcome back to the show, guys. Thanks for staying with me. If you have any thoughts on anything I've just been talking about, about the show in general, or about Seth versus Brock in particular, or anything that I'm going to be talking about in a few moments, you can do so in various means. Sign up to LOP forums, where you can find me milling around all the time in the various threads. That's the way I would encourage you to do it first and foremost, because it's part of the greatest wrestling community on the internet. I genuinely believe that. LOP forums, free to sign up. Get on over, get posted, maybe even try a column or two of your own because I get great feedback every week. Most of you would make excellent columnists. Take the dive, you won't regret it. Or, of course, you can find me on social media, tweet me at LOP Plan, find me on Facebook under the name Samuel Plan, or if you're really feeling old school, send me an email, samuel.plan101 at gmail.com, or of course, you could drop me a comment on any of my posts on lordsofpain.net itself, be it a column or a podcast. With that being said, I wanted to take a second to have a quick word on the women's main event triple threat match. And I have to say that I was relatively underwhelmed by it. I thought, I now granted I haven't had a chance actually to watch this one back yet. And I was extremely tired at the time that it happened. So I may change my mind once I've watched it back. But on my initial reaction, I felt like this was the match that broke what felt like the predominant rule of the night in that it seemed to be more concerned with putting on an exciting match than it did telling an immersive story. I didn't feel like any of the characters that we had seen during the build-up to this match carried over into the match itself. I think it speaks to the convoluted nature of the way that the match was built to over the weeks by WWE, that it was unclear as to what the actual narrative in the match itself was proving to be, because there was just no real sense of, uh, of, of roster positioning among the three of them, or economy of character among the three of them, to really know you know, what they were all being motivated by. I mean, you, you know, that there, there were there was a foundation there, but it, it never really, to me, got satisfactorily built upon. And then the match itself felt very disjointed, as if it lurched from one, quote-unquote, cool moment to another, one cool exchange to another. It was like they were trying to be too clever with it, that they were trying to steal the show. And I can understand if that was the case, and I'm not saying it definitely was, because I don't know, but if that was the case... I can certainly understand why, because, you know, the amount of pressure on those women to deliver that night was huge. But it was a disappointment to me that it lacked the kind of synergy of the greatest triple threat match. It's a tricky genre to get to do right, uh, to do creatively, originally, and, and, and effectively. Very few are able to hit upon all three of those, you know, tick all three of those boxes. WrestleMania 20 and Backlash 2004 or 2, as well as Royal Rumble 2015 and the Shield triple threat. I think they're all great examples of triple threat matches that are able to tick all those boxes. I felt like the women's triple threat on Sunday wasn't. And the, the, the finish that, you know, regardless of whether it was botched or not, didn't help because it really was sudden and jarring and it felt as if it came too soon. Not because the match wasn't long enough, but because because of how disjointed it was, it, the match never felt like it was building and building and building to a crescendo, which is a key part of any storytelling device, right? Whether whether, whether you're writing a book or a screenplay or whatever it may be, you've got a, the, there needs to be a sense of swelling momentum within your narrative as you head towards the conclusion, as the stakes heighten. And in wrestling, more often than not, that takes the form of an increased pace leading into the finish. But that's just one example. But it was very sudden this time around, and it was it was very unsatisfying, and I think that's why a lot of fans kind of felt a little bit let down by the way the match concluded, as well as the fact, like I said, that it was very kind of jilted and, and stuttery, and it never really seemed to settle into a pattern or settle into a single narrative thread that it could build its action around. I think as a triple threat match, it wasn't that great, in all honesty. Um, as a women's match in WWE, I, I said this on Aftershock, I did feel like there were better matches at WrestleMania 34, mainly between Charlotte and Asuka, but also even at WrestleMania 32, which is the kind of triple threat match that I had hoped they would wrestle. 
Not in the sense that I wanted it to resemble it, but in the sense that the WrestleMania 32 triple threat match was one that seemed to to circle around an element of synergy and of narrative, and that just seemed to be a little smoother and a little bit more fluid than the one we saw last Sunday night. So overall, I was left a little crestfallen. I think it probably didn't help that it came at the end of a very long show in which, as I said, pretty much every single match was operating in a style that I have sorely missed in WWE, but that felt like it was in the ascendancy that evening. Um, So, yeah, generally speaking, a little disappointed with the women's main event. I'm sure it's not going to be the last time that they do close out a WrestleMania, and I hope the next time they do, it's actually a singles match, because it avoids the unnecessary pitfalls that are presented by a triple threat environment that they didn't necessarily need to be put in a position to have to overcome. Just a quick word before I get to the Kofi Daniel Bryan match on a couple of other stories that happened that night that I really enjoyed. I've already mentioned the tag team match between the Revival and the Elite Squad, which I thought was the best tag match of the night and is a testament to what a simply structured story can achieve. We saw that kind of tag team match a lot during my favourite period in the history of WWE, mainly the New Generation era. And they had a great match the second night as well on on Monday Night Raw, the night after, uh, where uh, the Elite Squad retained the championships much to my surprise and I know that some people may kind of be a little bit uh, cynical about the prospect of Zack Ryder and Kurt Hawkins carrying those championships but for as long as the storytelling remains strong in the ring and I'm sure that they're both capable of telling good strong stories in the ring then I'm going to be uh, a very much a happy fan I'm really hoping that the trend we saw emerge in the ring over the last couple of days uh, as of recording stays with WWE. I'd love to see a more composed style of wrestling make its return. I'm not sure it will, but nonetheless, that's something that I hope for. I also actually really quite liked the Finn Balor-Bobby Lashley match now that I've had time to sit and digest it a little bit more. I thought there were some great visuals. Bobby Lashley with the with the contact lenses, but also his body language. He had a, a grimace on his face, and there was a, a shot, I remember, of him being on one knee, staring across the ring as the demon made his entrance. Uh, and the match itself... I thought maximised its minutes well. There were a number of spears that fed into the idea that the demon is an augmented form of Finn Balor. I thought Leo Rush played an effective role on the outside of the ring, and it was nice and brief as well. I even quite liked the story that was told in the Triple H Batista match, which was one in which Triple H tapped into his remorselessness and essentially proved every word Batista had said about him absolutely right in the process of defeating Batista and in the eyes of many fans proving Batista wrong. That match was something of a tragedy even though it felt like a victory for the hero. That makes it very, very unique as as a story. And while I wouldn't watch it as part of the overall presentation of WrestleMania 35 because I think it derailed the show, I nevertheless think that it was actually a really good match considering the uh, the 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 circumstances surrounding it was it self indulgent like I've seen some people say it probably was but show me a Triple H match particularly in recent years that hasn't indulged his ideas a little bit too much anyway. I could forgive it if the match and the story told is good, and I think that they were. It's a match that I could have easily seen playing out again during the New Generation era, um, the latter-day New Generation era, maybe 96, 97 time. And in isolation, I'm confident that it will be an enjoyable match. Um, the rest of the card, you know, decent stuff. Nothing too too spectacular there, but again, uh, appreciated uh, one or two of the, the other stories being told, including actually the US title match, which I thought did Samoa Joe a, a lot of favours. But obviously the centrepiece of the show was what I really wanted to spend a little time talking about in this second half of SEID this week, which was Daniel Bryan versus Kofi Kingston. This was a match, and I said it on Aftershock and I'll say it again, that was transcendent. This was a match that breathes very rarefied air. You know, you hear the term thrown around a lot, instant classic. Uh, And I think it probably gets thrown around a little too easily, actually. Uh, But I thought that this was one. Excuse me. There were a number of things that 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 I really respected it for. And... And one of them was the fact that it didn't overindulge. It would be very easy in this day and age for a match of that magnitude to follow what I was talking about earlier, to follow that more is more NXT method 
of just laying on the false false finish so thick at the back end and going all sort of Shawn Michaels Undertaker on it. The fact that they didn't, I thought, played very much to the benefit of the match itself and to the power of the story being told because it had a finite, a definite conclusion that felt decisive and like an underscore under the, the, the social point being made about the match. I've often spoken at length and written at length, indeed I wrote a book about it, 101 WWE Matches to See Before You Die, about what wrestling can achieve when it decides to transcend just being a simulated sport or just being sports entertainment. And that it can be as much an insight into, or as much a piece of social commentary as any other form of art can. You'll hear people talk about movies as if there's, you know, um, as if there's social points being made about them. You'll hear people talking about books as if there's social points at the heart of the book. Wrestling can do that as well, has done that time and time again. Very rarely has it done done it as effectively and explicitly as the Kofi Kingston-Daniel Bryan match did this last Sunday, a match that made a strong point at a point in time in which it needs making strongly. I don't want to go too much into that element of it, though, because I feel, particularly as a a white British-born fan, that I can't really tell you or describe to you effectively enough the power that that story is going to have. The, the 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 fans who are going to be able to do that for you are the fans whom it most directly affects, who are the same fans who feel they have been not just underrepresented, but not even represented at all at the highest echelon of the foremost professional wrestling promotion on the planet. So I will leave it to better men who are more who are who are more in a position to relate that to you, to relate that to you. I just wanted to say, though, that it is absolutely an example of how professional wrestling can be more than just professional wrestling. This was pro wrestling in what I call in 101, my book, its transcended state. And it was breathing rarefied air. It was electrifying, goosebump-inducing, spine-shivering stuff. Helped largely by the fact that the match itself was magnificent. This was a match, I described it on Aftershock and on Twitter this way, that I felt took the cerebral depth of WrestleMania 10 between Bret Hart and Owen Hart, added in the emotional power of Daniel Bryan and Triple H at WrestleMania 30, threw in its, the, the power of its social, social message on top of that, uh, and mixed all those things together to create something truly special. I d- it's it's difficult to say this sort of thing without without sounding pretentious, though it's never stopped me before. <laughs> um, but I remember watching it on the night, and there were a number of moments in the match. I remember one particular moment standing out especially. Daniel Bryan, very late on, I think, had Kofi Kingston in what I believe was the third label lock of the match. And the urgency had never been greater in the story they were telling. And, I mean, one great thing about this match was body language throughout. And Kofi's in particular was marvellous because by the time he's in the third label lock, you get a real palpable sense that his energy is gone, but his fight is still there. Because you see his hand, his free hand, kind of still moving, still scraping across the mat, still searching for the ropes, but its movements are minimal. I mean, I'm talking, it was moving in millimetres. And in the background, as the fans are already going crazy and losing their minds, and commentary are passionately espousing what's happening, in the background you see Xavier Woods, who has worn his emotion on his sleeve throughout this entire thing, egging the crowd, animated like he has never been, egging the crowd on, getting them to cheer, getting them to, to push Kofi Kingston past this label lock, push him on, past his body failing him to survive and, and, and fight back. It was such an electrifying moment, uh, almost an out-of-body moment where just the visuals that you were seeing the body language the semantic meaning of what you were seeing and think about the power of that visual as well when you come to rewatch this match and I encourage you to do so think about the power of that visual when you consider the social context of what this match means of uh, of an African American being able to shatter a glass ceiling that has been unfairly imposed upon him and and those of his same cultural background uh, for for decades for centuries and there he is with his brother on the outside getting 80,000 people from across the world of all different nations and ethnicities and races 
to egg him on to fight on and get that win, that is one of the single most powerful things I've ever seen in anything. It doesn't matter what it is. Think about the context of that. When you think about what this match meant for the African-American experience in particularly the United States, to have, uh, you know... One guy in a, in a labelle lock desperately fighting on and his brother on the outside egging 80,000 people on from across the spectrum of all humanity willing Kofi Kingston on to succeed. That is such an incredible thing that it's, that it's almost enough to bring a tear to your eye just talking about it. Uh, and that moment is what I will always think of when I think about this match. But to put all of that, if you can even, to one side for a second, the match itself I thought was was brilliantly executed. As I said, it had all the cerebral depth of, of WrestleMania 10's match between Bret Hart and Owen Hart, so let's talk about that for a second here. Uh, the, the, the counters were what stood out to me about the actual action itself the most. They were so smooth, so excellently executed. You know, I always think that the standard that I think of when I think about smooth counters is how Kurt Angle at his height would be able to counter almost anything into an ankle lock. I mean, for God's sake, he counters a moonsault from Shawn Michaels into an ankle lock. And it would be so fast and so sudden and so smooth. And that applied in triplicate in this match. The way that, you know, Kofi would counter a counter from Brian back and forth all the time. And they always felt like they made sense. It wasn't done just to try and wow you. You know, there was no sense of choreography about what was going on, despite the fact that it was quite clearly tightly choreographed. And that's a real marker of a great, I think, wrestling match, particularly in this day and age, is, you know, a lot of people sort of would point to Dean Malenko matches as as a great standard. Uh, but there would always be passages in a Dean Malenko match, especially if he was wrestling a Benoit or a Guerrero, where it would be painfully obvious that it was choreographed, that it would just it would just shatter your sense of disbelief. This match didn't have that. I've already mentioned body language and the way that Kofi in particular would sell with increasing measures of, of, of exhaustion, the label lock, uh, but Daniel Bryan's was on point as well. The action was smooth, and what, one of the things I loved most was that Kofi won with a single trouble in paradise. I've already mentioned that it avoided the temptation of having, you know, 15 kickouts. And because Kofi won with a single trouble in paradise, not only, as I mentioned earlier, did that really kind of emphasize the point of the match and really sort of underline it seven times over with a hard full stop at the end, like a mic drop moment. But it also made the moment in, in retrospect, and certainly when you come back to rewatch it, it helped further solidify the effectiveness of Kofi Kingston kicking out of Daniel Bryan's knee strike, running knee strike, which is something not even Triple H kicked out of at WrestleMania 30. It's not very often you see people kick out of that move, and the fact that it happened in a match that was won with a single trouble in paradise helped make that all the more dramatic. You know, it really drive, drives home the point. Uh, and that that point is that obviously when everyone kicks out of every finisher, you never you don't have any effect on 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 when people kick out of finishes. This was a match that actually demonstrated it can still be effective if used in the right way. That gives me hope as a wrestling fan, uh, and again I think helped ensure that this was a match that again felt like a throwback to a time in which cerebral wrestling was. Uh, was the you know the the order of the day, and I'm sure this. Listen, I, there may even be some of you guys listening to this podcast that think that that very much still applies to wrestling of today. I would humbly disagree with that. There's the predominant fashion of wrestling these days in the ring isn't for me. Um, so again, what I was saying at the top of the show here, very very refreshing for me that 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 style was in the ascendancy this weekend. But most importantly, was front and center of the match at the front and center of WrestleMania this year, which to my mind was the Kofi Kingston uh, Daniel Bryan match. I thought that Rowan actually played a very, very effective role in this match as well. The way I think there was a moment where he uh, began to interfere and Xavier Woods and Biggie came to the rescue and Rowan kind of initially kind of countered that, uh, but was unable to stem the tide of the New Day, which was in itself a fantastic metaphor to have. But the the moment where Xavier comes flying off of the steps especially was, was a, a testament to the passion that sat at the heart of this entire matchup. Um, one thing that I think it's also worth reserving some credit for, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but Daniel Bryan did not hang around. When Kofi Kingston picked up the victory, Daniel Bryan was nowhere to be seen. He disappeared. And that's such a noble move uh, on his part as a performer to allow Kofi Kingston to have this moment that he'd waited for 11 years for and to have, indeed, hundreds of thousands of, if not millions of wrestling fans around the world have this moment that they'd waited 11 years for, if not longer. 
That's a real. That's the, a demonstration of a real class act in the industry. We knew Barrett Bryan would be motivated going into this to give Kofi the most amazing match he can, and I think Bryan outdid even his career best performance at Elimination Chamber back in February and very much delivered on giving Kofi the best match of both men's careers in my mind, actually in WWE, because I would rate this above any of, of Bryan's other uh, sort of celebrated matches as well. Um, so that was a great moment, and it also facilitated the wonderful moment in which Kofi's uh, sons joined them in the ring alongside his brothers, and you saw some genuine emotion on the faces of them all. And seeing it was, it was, it reminded me of that moment at the end of Canadian Stampede, where the whole Hart family get in the ring, and those those are WrestleMania moments. Not The Rock coming out, setting fire to his name. Not Ronda Rousey hip-tossing Triple H. You know, not Hulk Hogan, Steve Austin, The Rock taking 20 minutes at the beginning of a show to pat each other on the back. The WrestleMania moments are the moments where Eddie hugs Chris. Are the moments where Seth steals the title. Are the moments where Kofi Kingston is joined by Big E and Xavier Woods and his two young sons in the ring celebrating a moment that shattered a centuries-old glass ceiling that should never ever ever have been imposed in the first place and should never be imposed again all of it celebrated by a spectrum of 80,000 people from across the planet from all different social backgrounds all joining in this wonderful moment that demonstrates very much the line that opened Wrestlemania 17 is true Wrestlemania and professional wrestling by extension is a celebration of life the match between Kofi and Daniel Bryan is a life-affirming experience that I will take to my grave. It is a match that breathes very rarefied air in the history of professional wrestling. Very rarefied air in the history of professional wrestling as sports entertainment is dead. Uh, blah, 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 I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm so excited uh, of wrestling as sports entertainment and breathes rarefied air as, uh, uh, as professional wrestling as performance art as well. It was magnificent. I adored every second of it. I know that so many fans did as well. People talk about it as if it's an instant classic. If it's, I've even seen people call it a borderline instant classic. It's beyond any of that. This is what wrestling can be as performance art. This is professional wrestling in its transcendent state. This is professional wrestling as life. And I love it. If I was to do my top 35 WrestleMania matches... I know people could be wary of saying things like this so soon removed from something. But I think it would very much be probably top five if not outright number one i think it was that good the centerpiece of wrestlemania 35 and listen i was so invested in the seth rollins story heading into this show that was front and center of my attention but coming out of the other end of the show this is the story that i'll be remembering this show most for and i mean you guys know how obsessive i am about seth rollins so i think that 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 expresses my appreciation for the Kofi Bryan match more than anything else possibly could do. My thank you to the both of them as a wrestling fan. Uh, my my thank you to both of them just as a human being as well. Because what a wonderful way to be able to remember WrestleMania 35 for. So, all in all, I guess my closing thought... And to be fair, this isn't even something that I'd thought about coming into doing this show... But my closing thought about WrestleMania 35 is that it's, yes, it's far too long. I mean, I you know, we, we kind of talked ourselves out of this, Maverick and I, particularly over the last week. But I think, you know, seven, particularly seven and a half hours, it's just too long and it needs to stop. But... WrestleMania 35, first of all, was two matches away from being a great WrestleMania, those two being Triple H and Kurt Angle's matches. Uh, and But to my mind, not only was the best WrestleMania since 31, but was also, I dare say, as good a WrestleMania as I could hope for in the age of excess, because the rings, the predominant ring style, the storytelling style, was one I greatly appreciated. That put the storytelling first before it put anything else first. And while I was mildly let down and a little bit disappointed by the main event, it won't be enough to take away from the fact that I had a hell of a good weekend this weekend. I've had my enthusiasm in WWE and its products renewed by virtue of the, the scope of, of champions that we now have. And by the way, what a moment it was to open Raw, seeing Kofi Kingston as WWE champion stood opposite Seth Rollins as Universal champion with the crowd going so ballistic, they actually did a Hogan Rock moment. What a moment. Like That, I hope, is what comes to define WWE now for the next 
however many years it will be. But what a moment, Contemporary Stars, this time next week. It's a thank you from me. So thank you for listening. Stay safe out there. Have a good week, and I'll see you next Wednesday.